Good morning, church. Ryan here. A uh, couple of things I want to just kind of get your head around as we head into spring. One of these days we'll have spring and summer coming up. Our, our church has decided to tackle being together as a church this summer, this spring and summer, um, in-house churches and gathering once a month as a large church. And we're really excited about the opportunities we're going to have together as a whole church. Uh, May 9th, uh, Mother's Day, uh, just around the corner, we're gathering as a church at the Arvada Center, June 6th, uh, July 18th, and August 15th. And we've strategically mapped out these Sundays together as a whole church um, because these are uh, perfect Sundays, actually, in the calendar to do so. And so just the rhythm of people's lives and how it sets up at the Arvada Center. These are perfect weekends for us to gather as a whole church. But we've decided to lean in uh, on house churches because they are phenomenal. And so if you haven't been a part of a house church or you're kind of dipping your toes into that, uh, maybe you've got the vaccine, maybe you are... Um, I've uh, heard so much about them. We want to encourage you to be a part. And some of them are still meeting over Zoom. Some, uh, most of them are meeting in person. And this is uh, the stories that are coming out of house churches. We're going to share some of those in the weeks ahead. But the stories coming out of house churches is about connection, about um growth and and pushing um, each other forward in our in our apprenticeship to Jesus and uh, I just want to encourage you if you haven't stepped into a house church yet to be brave okay just pick a Sunday on the calendar circle it say we're just going to be brave this Sunday see what this is all about we will help you connect to a house church uh, we have nine or ten house churches. We want to start one or two more this spring and summer. If you're interested in that, we would love to help you get off the ground. And so just want to encourage you with that. We're all in on house church this summer. And we want you to come along with us on that and experience what God is doing in the life of this church. Now, there's going to be some unique things coming up. When it comes to house churches, some of the house churches are getting together. There's a lot of things happening in that. Um, I also want to let you know youth stuff is is coming online right now with Jaden. So um, we want to encourage you to jump into that. Uh, Katie's putting together some family gathering stuff this summer as well. I want you to be a part of that as well. Um, but we're going to transition now into the teaching. I want to say big thanks to Randy McNeil who stepped up last week and taught um, out of uh, Mark chapter 6. Huge, uh, huge for me. I, I had COVID. Some of you don't know that. I had COVID bad. And, um, and so healing, kind of getting my strength back. But a thank you to Randy for jumping in and doing that. Today, uh, we are going to talk about a sandwich but let me pray first. God, thank you for gathering, for, uh, for gathering us together. Um, God, we gather because you've taught us that by gathering, 
we set out, out, out uh, outside of ourselves, uh, we, we set up time to worship, to be together, to intentionally focus on you, to intentionally focus on encouraging each other, to reorient our lives and our hearts and our habits around what it looks like to set our lives up differently as followers of Jesus, to set our hearts around apprenticing Jesus, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and ultimately doing the things that Jesus did. This is a passage today that draws us back into that thinking, back into that habit. Would you guide us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to talk about a sandwich. And I know I just made a bunch of you hungry, especially Troy. The point is, is this isn't, this is a literary sandwich. Bummer. Um, this is what scholars call our Mark and sandwich, meaning the, the gospel writer of Mark, Mark, is writing this letter to Christians in Rome during the time of great persecution. And Mark uses something unique to all the other gospel writers. Mark uses a device called a sandwich where he takes two stories, he starts a story, inserts another story, and then finishes the first story. And the goal is to uh, have both stories bring meaning out in new ways. And we've actually already experienced a couple Mark and Sandwiches. I just haven't uh, brought those to your attention. But you, I would encourage you to go back and see if you can find them. But uh, the, one author actually says, one scholar says, the flavor of the outer story okay, adds zest to the inner story. And the zest of the inner one is meant to permeate the outer one. And so there's supposed to be, uh, the intent here by Mark is to bring a new uh, meaning and flavor to both stories. So we're about to read these two stories, okay? You've actually read um, the bread of the sandwich story in House Church. Um, and on first glance, these stories don't have a lot to do with each other, but... When you bite into it, you realize that Mark is up to something. And so I want to start us by reading what you read in the house church. It says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And so Jesus begins to send out representatives. Uh, the work is becoming bigger and bigger. There's been healings. There's been a lot of people that have experienced not only Jesus' teaching, but the miracles. And so Jesus uh, sends out the disciples. He, he not only called them a few chapters ago, but he actually begins to give them authority. And he's saying, listen, this is a flat org chart. You have the authority to do the things that I have been doing so I want you to go in my name as my representatives all over and teach and preach and serve. And um, these were his instructions. Verse 8, 
Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Um, what's interesting is all of this is language straight out of Exodus 12. Jesus is actually calling to mind um, the similar instructions that God gave the people of Israel when they were in captivity in Egypt, and he is calling them out of Egypt. Um, in this case, it's interesting that Jesus is using this language because it's about also calling the people of Israel out of the bondage that they were in. And so, interesting, the use of 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. Um, he talks about taking a staff or a walking stick, which is the icon of Moses. Um, their clothing, the clothing reference is almost verbatim out of Exodus. Um, the clothing to wear out of Egypt. Um, this idea of urgency, um, that don't stockpile things, don't pack a suitcase, don't, there's a sense of urgency to it. Um, and then this whole idea of Israel's story reaching climax through Jesus and the disciples, and that Jesus is the new Moses and the disciples this new Israel. It's just, it's just imagery that Mark is bringing out, okay? And it says in verse 10, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. So don't go in there and try to upgrade. Um, don't, don't try to like position yourself to get the best um, deal, all right, as far as where you're staying. Go to one spot, find a house, stay there, okay? And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Um, in the ancient Near East, basically both then and now, um, hospitality is paramount to a religion. It's just what you did. It's just part. It just it's part of the culture. Okay, and so you would rely on hospitality in those days, and I believe many in this day too. Like you would rely on hospitality as you traveled. It's just part of how it was. It wasn't like hotels and. Airbnbs. It was, it was literally, you just found favor with the people when you came into a town and someone would put you up and feed you. Uh, it says, but, but when people reject you, Jesus is saying, don't get sad. Don't uh, dwell on it. Don't make it a part of who you are. Um, and, and, he, and it's a very provocative statement, this idea of shaking the dust off your feet. Um, when you would travel outside of Israel and then return, a good Jewish person would shake the dust of the Gentile country off of their feet so it would not contaminate them, would not pollute them. And this is the idea. Jesus is like, don't, don't take that offense with you. Shake it off. Shake that dust off your feet. It's not um, about ethnicity or race or anything or geography. This is literally based on faith. So if people reject you, they reject me. And this was a radical idea for them. This was a big uh, statement for them. And then in verse 12, it says, they went out and preached that people would repent. Now, the idea here in repent, and I say this over and over again because it has such a weird connotation when we hear it as uh, in, in the English language and in our context. Repent means to change the way you think about the world. And so what Jesus is telling them to do is call people to change the way they think about the world, how it operates, the power, the structures, the, 
the religious dynamics, change the way that they think about the world. And then it says, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with, sick people with oil and healed them. Um, this idea of he, they're living out the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus uh, announces that the kingdom of God is here, um, that is close, that is in the vicinity, is within the air you're breathing, is, is, is within grasp. And, and basically, he's displayed that over the last few chapters in his words and in his actions, in his preaching, okay, and in his uh, serving people. And this is what the disciples are called to do. One miracle at a time, one healing at a time, one um, going towards the people who are on the margins of society, the sick and the, the unwanted. Um, and so this is the beginning of the sandwich. This is bread piece one of, of the sandwich story that Mark is trying to tell. Jesus sends out the disciples with authority and he tells them how to do it. But here's the middle part of the sandwich, and I want to warn you, it doesn't taste good, okay? So, verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So here's the thing. Uh, all this work is being done. Um, Jesus's name is being talked about and, and the disciples and people are doing miraculous things in the name of Jesus. And, and word is getting back to Herod. Now, what's interesting is this weird part, because we're actually about to get into the conversation of who John the Baptist is, but Herod believes that Jesus is the resurrection of John the Baptist. And why does he think that? Some people think he's Elijah. Some people think he's, um, you know, prophet from long ago, just... But Herod thinks that Jesus is the resurrection of John the Baptist. Why does he think that? Why is that so important to him? Well, here's the story of John the Baptist. Here's the ugly part of the middle of the sandwich. It says in verse 17, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, okay? For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, history lesson. Um, we're going to have a, sh a little chart that's going to come up a few times during this. Um, but Herod Antipas, who is the Herod in this story, there's a number of Herods throughout scripture, but Herod Antipas divorced his first wife, and he had an affair with his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, um, and then he married her. Now, talk about drama. Um, this is a well-known story at the time of Mark's writing because it is recent history. Now, 
For us to really understand the dynamics going on here, we have to do a little history lesson as to who is who and how the family tree forks. And so um, we'll show you this diagram of, of Herod and his family. Now, what you need to understand, what's really important here is family dynamics and power structures. So in order to have power, in order to be given power, um, you have to marry well. And people scheme. Women scheme to be part of the power structure. Men scheme. And usually it has to do with sex and it has to do with power and money. And so uh, what happened was, is Herod Antipas divorced his first wife. His first wife was the daughter uh, of King Eridus uh, of Nabatad. And, and, and of Nabate. And Nabate is to the east of uh, the Dead Sea. Okay? And so when he divorces his first wife and has an affair with his brother's wife, okay, it starts a border war. It starts a border war that actually Herod loses. Now, this is in the future, um, but this this is fresh drama right here. In fact, he arrests he arrests a John the Baptist because John is telling him, "Hey, listen, it is not right what you're doing and what you're doing is actually unlawful and and it's against God's plan. And so Herodias, um, his wife uh, that he ends up marrying, encourages him to throw John the Baptist in prison. And down the road, obviously, you just need to know that that, uh, Herod is not a king. He wants to be a king. He is a tetrarch, which is the ruler of a fourth. So he has been given a a chunk of land and people to rule over, but he is not a king. He wants to be a king. And so what's funny about Mark's gospel is Mark calls him um, a king, but the, the readers and the under, people who understand the story know that, that Herod's not a king. This is like sarcasm, okay? In fact, down the road, 10 years later, he asks Rome for kingship, uh, to be made king over Israel. And he is laughed at. He is laughed at by the emperor at the time. And he is, he is banished to Gaul. And so uh, Mark is actually using this idea of king for Herod as sarcasm. So why would John risk his neck, okay, to uh, call out um, Herod on his adultery. Well, here's why. And this is very, very, very important. Herod wanted to be king of Israel, like I said. And John wanted to prepare the way of the king of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. That's what that means. Messiah means king of Israel. Um, and he is preparing the way for Jesus and calling, um, calling out Herod in the process. So, so John's critique of Herod's adultery was a threat to Herod's ambition, and that is why Herod arrested uh, John the Baptist. And so we're going to show you um, the 
diagram here in a second because this is where it gets really interesting. So Herodias nursed a grudge. I love that phrase, nursed a grudge against Herod. Now, uh, church, just as, as an aside, if you are nursing a grudge, okay, right now in your life, you have got to confront this because this nursing of a grudge will flower into something that you will regret. And I just want to just take a moment and just share that with you. If you are nursing a grudge, I want you to reflect on that. Um, because Herodias is nursing a grudge against John, and then it says, and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So, Two millennia ago, before Netflix and books and ways you could entertain yourselves and your dinner guests, what you would do is, if you were wealthy, you would bring in a philosopher, a, a storyteller, a traveling philosophical entertainer for dinner. And Herod brought in John. And John would come in and teach about the kingdom of God and Jesus coming and the Messiah coming. And really, Herod feared John. He knew who John was, and he was torn because John was this great mind, this uh, prophet, this holy and righteous man, as it says here. And yet at the same time, in Herod's heart, is the lure of money and sex and power. The same lure that you and I have. And when we're confronted with Jesus and there's this, we're torn. We're torn with the message of Jesus and the American dream or the message of Jesus and uh, consuming and uh, profiting and success and power basically everything our world operates on. And it says, finally, in verse 21, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So a lot of Jewish people involved in this. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, okay, this is very, very important for us to understand what's going on here. This is a birthday thrown by Herod to, to show favor and to keep his power uh, by making everybody happy. And, and a birthday was a very pagan thing. It wasn't a Jewish thing. So this is more of a pagan ritual cultural thing. All the men uh, would get drunk at the dinner. And what would happen is instead of bringing in a philosopher or someone to entertain your dinner guests, on your birthday, you would bring in some wow factor. Uh, uh, and, and here it's basically supposed to be a sex worker that would come in and dance for the men at the table. Now, this dinner guest happened to be his brother's daughter, meaning the daughter of Herodias and his brother, Herod Philip. And uh, they had already been married, Herodias and Herod, and his stepdaughter comes in, probably scholars believe 12 to 13 years old, and does a sensual dance in front of him 
and his male guests. And it pleased Herod. This is gross. Um, if, uh, welcome to church, right? Um, if this was a Netflix show, I wouldn't watch it. Let's just put it that way. Now, watch what happens. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom, which is a joke because he doesn't really have a kingdom. He's not a king. Mark is being sarcastic. The reality is he thinks he's a king. He wants to be a king. He thinks he has a kingdom. He wants to have a kingdom. He has neither. And this is an expression of speech, this idea, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Um, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? This is her mother's opportunity to get the power that she wants. You got to understand that she is involved with Herod um, Antipas because her brother fell out of favor with the father. And she knows that power is really going to have, if she has an opportunity of power, it's through Herod Antipas. So she says, the head of John the Baptist, because she knows that John the Baptist is keeping them from their dream of power. And once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish, on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of the oaths and his dinner guests, and he didn't want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a depressing and tragic way to die. John is a righteous and holy man, according to Herod. And Jesus calls John the greatest prophet. And John dies at the birthday party of a screwed up, would-be pagan wannabe king. And this is the middle part of the sandwich. This is what you would call a poop sandwich, right? This is obviously a... Some, Mark is doing something with this. Now, let's read the, the part of the story that has to do with the first story as the sandwich. Verse 30. It's a thin slice of bread, people. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, that's the last part of the first story. Jesus sends out the 12. For some reason, Mark inserts this story of John the Baptist and his beheading and the incest and the creepiness of this whole family. And then we end with the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, in Greek, there's no paragraph breaks. There's no verses. There's no 30. There's no, there's none of that. But between 29 and 30, um, there's a paragraph break in our English Bibles. Um, I think there should be actually another paragraph break after 30. And um, here's the thing. Notice what the disciples are called for the first time. 
ever they're called apostles. Now, apostles is the Greek word apostolos, which means sent one. So they're no longer followers. They're actually sent ones. And this is an exciting end to the first story. But what do each of these stories have to do with each other? Why did Mark bookend the story of John the Baptist with this story? What is this sandwich up to? Why is this happening? Well, here is a uh, well-known scholar, and he says this. What does Mark intend by bracketing the martyrdom of the baptizer with the mission of the twelve? What's the intent here? He says the sandwich structure crams mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death, into an inseparable relationship. This is precisely what Jesus will teach in, in chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow him. Now, there's a graphic phrase that we've read um, a few times, and we'll read them to come. And the phrase is handed over, meaning that's this idea of being handed over, arrested, handed over to authorities. Jesus is handed over. Um, he actually tells his disciples, you will be handed over to synagogues and rulers and authorities. And the implication here is that John is the template. John is the template of what it looks like to have a life wrapped around the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to, to have your whole life oriented around what Jesus is about and who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is. That this will happen to Jesus down the road. He will be arrested and killed. Okay, That this will happen later to the twelve, ten of which become killed for their faith in Jesus. That this will happen to Mark's readers. These are, these are the people that Mark initially wrote the gospel of Mark, this account of Jesus for. Uh, those who are being persecuted in Rome. That they are facing persecution in Rome. And this is what Mark is, partly why Mark is writing this. And this is what will happen to followers of Jesus down through history and through time. That this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. That it's not puppies and rainbows. That reading this right now, if you were to read this uh, account right now, and you are living in Egypt or Syria or China, or, or, or you are... At a church in Nigeria, and, and, and you were wondering if the, the seat you're about to sit on has a bomb underneath it. Uh, there's an organization that tracks martyrdom and um, over history and things like that. And they say that more people are killed for faith in Jesus today than in any other time in human history. That upwards of 105,000 people a year are martyred because of their allegiance to Jesus. That right now you and I sit comfortably in couches around a house church uh, setting and today somewhere someone will die because they refuse to back down on believing that Jesus is King and Lord. And if you're in prison right now in Iran or at a church in Nigeria, you can imagine reading this in your context. 
Mark's way of saying that no matter what you're up against, okay, you are not alone. You are not alone. Uh, Jesus, the disciples, John the Baptist, um, you are not alone. And that what is stirring in your life and the, and the difficulties you're facing, and they're not alien to you, and they're not alien to what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so here's the hard part for you and I. You and I are not facing death and imprisonment. We're not. Um, some uh, people get angry that they, um, you know, that there's certain things that are not um, how they used to be back in the 1950s, you know, or the 1970s or whatever when it comes to following Jesus and going to church, okay? Um, but notice the language here. There's a few thoughts for us today that I think are very important. Yes, we experience cultural shame for following Jesus. We'll get into all that here in a second. But I think there's a few thoughts for you and I um, as we chew on this text. The first one is this. Just like the disciples, we have been sent out to speak and to serve. Okay, that we don't get out of that. That just like Jesus sent the disciples out, our mission, we are also missionaries. The Latin word here is missio, this idea that, that Jesus, it says that he began to send them out. Now, it means that he didn't do this as a one-time thing. He, this is what he is always doing. That if you choose to follow Jesus, he will turn you into a sent one. That that is part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And all of you who follow Jesus in the wake of his life and death and resurrection, you are sent ones. You are missionaries. Now, we don't like the word missionary. Now, if you, if you, language is important. So if you want to say in your mind, in your mind's eye, you're thinking a missionary is somebody who sells all their stuff here and raises support and goes to a foreign country to tell foreign people about Jesus. Um, and then in some church lobby somewhere is their picture with a, like a little yarn line to the country that they're at. If that's what your definition of missionary is, um, I just reject it. It's a poor definition. Okay. Um, you can call it um, a sent one or a representative of Jesus, which would be better. But here's the thing. If you would, won't call yourself a missionary, then you shouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because you and I are actually called to speak, preach the, the gospel. We'll get into that here in a second. And serve. And, and care for people, heal people, uh, serve people. That's what we're called to do. We're called to do that at your gym, at your work, at your school, at, your, at, at the dog park, at an AA meeting, at the homeless camp in your neighborhood. That's what you're called to do. That's what we're called to do. We're called to speak and to serve. Um, and, and it says that in the, the second part of the sandwich there, it says that they came and reported to Jesus all that they had done and taught. All that they did. They did both things. Both and. Done and taught. And speaking and serving are inseparable. Now, when you think right now, here's the thing. Like mainly what I'm doing right now is teaching. I'm teaching you um, some things in scripture. I'm not necessarily preaching. Um, there's, there's, there's some nuance to that. But 
as a to preach would be uh, in the Roman terms to herald to to announce uh, it's a message from the king, and so this idea is really important because whenever you tell somebody about Jesus, whenever you spend some time, maybe even it's like they're having a difficult time and you're like, can I pray for you? Um, which is something I'm trying to adopt a little bit more in my life as well. But can I pray for you? You're actually preaching. You're announcing the Lordship of Jesus. You're actually saying this is who Jesus is. And, and Jesus would serve people um, expecting nothing in return. Um, and, and believe in, and, you know, people can believe in Jesus. People would see his miracles and, and hear his words and, and walk away. But, but Jesus would still do it over and over and over again. Jesus would serve, okay, with no strings attached, uh, for no other reason to embody the love of the creator God into the situation that Jesus was in. And so you and I are called to do the same. We're called to speak and to serve. And we usually pick one or the other. And some of us don't pick either. Let's just be honest. Some of us, we would just rather assume just uh, grab a podcast um, and listen to some worship tunes, feel a little bit better. But, but our lives are not oriented around speaking and serving. And, and we need to reflect on that. Why is that? Uh, some people do a lot of speaking. They'll door to door and um, they'll do the classic, um, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die kind of thing, which please don't do that. Um, or hand out tracks, you know, these gospel tracks or whatever. Um, serving by far is the vast majority of us we're more comfortable with serving. Uh, and and um, but do you, do you but do you and I talk to people about Jesus? I know it's hard because there's a lot of cultural baggage with that right now. And I just want to be honest with you. It's easy for me to stand in front of this camera and share about Jesus with you. Um, what I'm doing right now does not count for me. Um, what I'm doing right now, most of you are listening to this. You trust Jesus. You believe in Jesus. And it's way easier. The reality is way easier for me to serve people than it is to talk to someone about Jesus. Uh, case in point, uh, I, I get my hair cut. And typically over a haircut of about 15 to 20 minutes, there's a lot of small talk with the lady who cuts my hair. And, and I've shared with you before that... Uh, being a pastor sometimes has some stigma to it. So I try to avoid telling people what I do. And, and she knows that I do some work with the police department. I care for officers, things like that. But she does not know I'm a pastor. And, and I was really convicted by this passage. I was convicted by this passage because I don't have, intentionally look for ways to share Jesus with people. I know some of you are like, you are our pastor. You're supposed to do that all the time. Um, and it's, it's just not as easy for me as you might think. And so it's something I'm pushing myself to, something I'm working on. And this passage is here this week. And I got my hair cut yesterday. I know, look at this. And, and the point is, is that I'm sitting there going, okay, I can't like sit in this chair and try to divert the conversation away from Jesus any longer. Like I feel really compelled. And so uh, she asked me, so is my day busy? What are you doing? I'm doing meetings. She's like, so what is it that you do for a living? You know, I've been going to this lady for like a year. So I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And then we start having a conversation. She talked about her growing up and this and that. And, and I just said, hey, listen, I just want to share with you. Like, I know it sounds super weird, 
And I know it sounds super creepy, and there might be a lot of baggage in your life, but you just got to understand the life of Jesus. And I just went on to talk about who Jesus was and and uh, his love and, and who God is and, and the story. It's how it's a different way of looking at the world and how um, there's freedom and hope. And it was just, it just came out. And it wasn't like a moment. I didn't baptize her in the sink or anything like that. The point is, is like, it was just, I got to share Jesus. And um, I need to keep pushing myself to do that. And you and I need to do this together. You and I are missionaries. We are sent ones. We have the authority of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak and to serve. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That, uh, there's, no other, there's no other way around it. That's part of it. Second thing we need to know is this. Some will accept you. Some will reject you, but that is okay because you are still called to go. You're still called to go. I'm still called to go. I'm still called to serve and to speak. Not everyone's going to like Jesus, and that is okay. Um, you are not a salesperson for Jesus, meaning um, there's no quota and there's no commission. That, that, you just speak and serve and trust. And, 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 and as Jesus says, you toss the seed and you trust. And the third thing I just want to say as we wrap this up is following Jesus is hard. And that's also okay. Listen, this sandwich story, the middle part is a dark and ominous story. It's, uh, the idea is follow Jesus and you may well end up like John. And I love his honesty and Mark's saying it's not easy to follow Jesus. And we live in a consumeristic culture and the church has absorbed that. And there's this very attractional model of doing church that says, get people in, uh, make Jesus attractive. Um, and hey, come to Jesus and he will make your life better and successful. And the problem is, is we have uh, a, a God and, and a, a a teacher in Jesus and Messiah in Jesus that has a totally different definition of what successful is. It's not money, sex, power. It's not a claim. It's not any of those things. See, I think all too easily you and I fall into the trap of following, falling for a wrong definition of greatness. We celebrate the wrong versions of greatness. And we try to somehow weave Jesus into that. Listen, greatness is being faithful to your commitments, even when those commitments get very difficult. And even when those, those commitments actually keep you from doing the things and being the person that you feel you deserve to be. That's greatness. Greatness is a couple who finds out they're gonna have a Down syndrome child and chooses to bring that child into the world and not end the pregnancy which 95% of people do in our culture. That's greatness, okay? It, greatness is a wife praying for her husband for decades, literally decades. Greatness is a family choosing to reorient their time and their money around the kingdom of God instead of the pattern of this world that talks about Money, success, college, career, American dream. 
You see, we need to completely reorient how we define success. And this is basically an anti-invitation, okay? This is an anti-invitation. It's basically saying, are you sure? Are you sure you want to follow Jesus? John the Baptist died. Jesus died. The disciples died. The waters are open for baptism if you want to follow Jesus. But it's not easy. And in a strange way, church, I just want you to know, I find this very encouraging. I find this very encouraging. Just the reality of what it looks like to follow a different king and a different Lord. And by the grace of God, you, don't, you and I don't face death and, and, and imprisonment right now, but we do carry a dose of social stigma. We bear the stigma. We follow Jesus. And, and for some people, what that means is we're uneducated, we're bigoted, we're, we're all these things. And the paradox is that Herod has it all. He has money and he has uh, power and prestige and he wants more and more of it. And ultimately he's in bondage to it. And John and later Jesus have been arrested, imprisoned, and killed, and in many ways have total freedom. And we get it all backwards because this is an upside down kingdom that we're invited into that is totally upside down. And the reality of following Jesus is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it leads to freedom. And you can go with culture and you can think it's freedom and you can and basically live your life further and further into bondage. Or you can go with Jesus and come to him and die to yourself and experience freedom. And that is the life we're invited into. And that is the life we're invited to invite others into. And it's not easy, but we're called to do it. And so let me pray, and then you'll get a chance to uh, talk about this and encourage each other in this as we finish up. Father, this is difficult to hear. And so many times we want to package Jesus in a different light, what it looks like to follow Jesus. But Jesus came to confront the powers of this age the way systems work, money and religion and all the things that go against what you have called us to. And you have called us through Jesus to come and die, to lay down our lives, to apprentice Jesus and part of that means that we speak and we serve, that we are intentional with our lives, that we make room to have relationship with people, not to make them projects, but to love them deeply. So God, would you show us what this looks like? Would you give us the ability and the courage to, to look at our lives and where are we fallen short of this call to serve and to speak? Would you give us great courage as a house church? 
in the days and weeks ahead. Will you show us what it looks like to pray for each other? Will you show us what it looks like to be creative and dream as a house church and, and how we could be focused on the people in this world and our friends and our neighbors and uh, those who are hurting and hungry and how we could live out the life of a disciple, the life of an apostle. Would you show us? We pray these things in your name. Amen.